Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. Today's the second sermon in our five-part series through the Epistle of Jude. Last week, we gave an introduction to this book in which we noted that the author, Jude, is the half-brother of Jesus and the brother of the early Christian leader, James. We also said that Jude's writing to a group of believers who are facing two imminent threats, one external and one internal. The external threat, as you may recall, was persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. Many Christians were being martyred for their faith at the time this book was written, and that's certainly noteworthy. However, Jude really doesn't get into that too much in this book, at least not directly. Rather, Jude's focus in this letter is on the internal threat to the church, which we identified last week as apostates or false teachers who have crept into this body of believers and have begun a subversive work of drawing people away from the true faith. Thus, Jude's goal in writing this letter is to warn this family of believers about the false teachers in their midst and to challenge them to resist false teaching and to defend the true faith or the true gospel. The two verses that we're going to look at today really comprise the thesis or the main idea of this entire book. Verse 3 is going to spell out for us Jude's purpose in writing this letter. And then verse 4 is going to tell us his motivation in writing it. Now, some may question, why would we even need to study a book such as this? Our church seems to be on solid ground theologically. We trust our pastors and teachers and small group leaders. We don't have any individuals in our church, at least that we know of, who are promoting a a false gospel. So is this book really even necessary for us? In response to that, I want to pull out a quotation I used this past Wednesday night that I believe is pertinent to this topic. President Reagan once said, freedom is a fragile thing. It's never more than one generation away from extinction. It's not ours by way of inheritance. It must be fought for and defended constantly by each generation. What the book of Jude tells us is that biblical fidelity is much the same. Biblical fidelity or faithfulness to scripture in any given church is a fragile thing and really is never more than one generation away from extinction. It too is not ours by way of inheritance. It must be fought for and defended constantly by each generation of the church. In other words, the cultural forces pulling us away from God's word are so strong and so constant that if each generation of the church does not make its stand and anchor itself to the word of God and to the true Jesus, any church in time can be lost to liberalism, can be lost to Phariseeism, can be lost to secularism, and that can happen within a generation. And so I would submit to you that the book of Jude, and specifically the text that we're going to look at today, is a text that is always relevant It's always necessary. It's always a message that we need to hear to contend earnestly for the faith. With that being said, let's jump in and start reading our text. We'll begin by looking at verse 3. 
Again, in this verse, Jude tells us his purpose in writing this letter. So let's read that. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was, excuse me, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, the first thing I want you to note about verse 3 is how Jude refers to his listeners. He calls them his beloved. Jude genuinely loves the people to whom he's writing. That's important because it is his love for them that gives him the right to speak truth to them. The overall tone of this letter, as we'll see, is pretty direct and pretty intense. But Jude can get away with that because the people know that he loves them. I would submit that until someone knows you truly love them, that you have not earned the right to speak hard truths into their life. Now, there may be exceptions to that, but I believe that they're few and far between. So think about being on the receiving end of that. There are certain people that you would take correction from. It may sting, but you'd receive it because you know they love you and they have your best interest at heart. On the other hand, there may be people who, if they tried to correct you, you might say, hey, you don't know me. You don't love me. You haven't earned the right to speak to me that way. And so what I'm saying is that wisdom and discernment are needed here. The bottom line is that when we do speak truth to someone, when God does put it on our heart to do that, it must always be in love. That is always the goal. That is always the Christian ideal to speak the truth in love. And that is what Jude does here in this book. The next thing that Jude says in verse 3 is fascinating. It would seem that he had in mind to write his readers a certain type of letter that he either never started or that he started and never sent. He says in verse 3, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. Many translations say, I was very eager to write to you concerning our shared or common salvation. It appears as though Jude was originally going to write this group of believers a different kind of letter, a very nice little letter reiterating the basic truths of their salvation in Jesus Christ. We can imagine in, in this letter, he would have reinforced the foundations of the gospel, that Christ Jesus lived a life we could not live, a sinless life, that he died a death we should have died, a sinner's death, that he rose to give us a life that we could never have otherwise, a resurrected life, and that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the only way to God. Now, that would have been a nice little letter, wouldn't it? He just wrote those things. And we all need to be reminded of those things constantly. But in the end, that was not the letter that God put on Jude's heart. That was not the letter that he ended up sending them. So what kind of letter did Jude end up sending? Well, what was the stated purpose of this letter? We see it in the next words of verse 3. Jude wrote to exhort his readers to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the purpose. Now, what does it mean to contend earnestly for the faith? The Greek word that's used there means to agonize over something, 
It was a word often used in relation to athletics, particularly the sport of wrestling. I don't know a lot about wrestling. Maybe some of you do, but I, I do know the few times I've watched a wrestling match, it's intense. I mean, those guys put it all on the line. Every muscle of their body is being exerted to try to pin that opponent to the match. We have a young man in our congregation. He's not here today, but uh, Lucas, it's a very, very good wrestler. But Jude is just saying that's the kind of effort that we should put forth to defend the faith. Jude is saying, whatever it takes, contend for the faith. Defend it at all costs with everything that's in you, with blood, with sweat, with tears. The true faith, once for all delivered to the saints, is a precious thing that must not be compromised, that must not be lost. It must be guarded. It must be protected by the people of God. Why does Jude exhort the people so strongly in this fashion? Why does he use such strong language as earnestly contend or agonize? Because he knows once a church loses the true faith, once a church loses the gospel, all else is lost. God will write Ichabod over the door of such a church. The glory of God has departed is what that name means. For God will not abide, nor will he bless any group of people who deny by their words or by their actions the lordship of Jesus Christ. In other words, to lose the true faith, to lose the gospel is in essence to turn the church over to the enemy. And that simply can't happen, not on our watch. This is why Jude is so impassioned. This is why he exhorts the people, contend for the faith. We do need to point out something very important that he says about the faith here. There's a qualifier in verse three. It specifies contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, the true faith, the true gospel does not change. It has been settled once and for all. This is because God is immutable. In other words, he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if God does not change, his gospel does not change. Jude wants his readers to know, if anyone comes to you with a different gospel other than the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, throw them out on their ear. They are apostates. They are false teachers. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter one. He said, even if we, or even an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we've already preached, let him be accursed. Did you catch that? Even if an angel appears to you in a vision and says, oh, there's another gospel now. Paul says, let that angel be accursed. Now, would an angel of God really do that? No, but the devil's a deceiver, and he's tricky, and he can make us think that we're hearing from God when we're really not. And that's why we must measure everything, no matter who it comes from, no matter where it comes from, against the word of God. That goes for me or anyone else who ever stands behind this pulpit. You measure the gospel that we're preaching against the word 
of God, always. Again, the point is that the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. The true faith, the true gospel does not change with the times. It is the same once and for all. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, always and forever. It is for this purpose, making this truth known, that Jude writes this letter. Now, let's turn our attention to Jude's motivation in writing this letter. What specifically was going on in this church that he found it necessary to even write this letter? Let's look now at verse 4, and we'll get a clue as to why he wrote it. He says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. What is Jude's motivation in writing this letter? Why does he find it necessary to exhort them to contend for the faith? To summarize verse four, his motivation is that certain men, in other words, false teachers, have crept into their church. Now, basically, a huge portion of this letter is spent in telling the people how to identify an apostate, how to identify a false teacher. In fact, the next two Sundays, we'll spend the great majority of our time looking at exactly that. In verses 5 through 19, that's basically all that Jude does, is describe false teachers, often using illustrations from the Old Testament as examples. As we said last Sunday, the book of Jude has often been labeled the Acts of the Apostates. And that's why so much of this book is dedicated to identifying and defining false teachers. But before we get to all that in coming weeks, I want to spend just a moment looking at verse 4. Because it too reveals to us some important characterizations, or excuse me, characteristics of false teachers. The first thing I want you to see in verse 4 is that Jude says, these certain men, now he, he does not name them for whatever reason, but he says these certain men have crept in unnoticed. The first thing we need to recognize about false teachers is that they don't advertise themselves as such. When a false teacher begins attending a local church and embedding himself in that body, he doesn't introduce himself by saying, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm a false teacher. I'm an apostate. Nor does he wear a name tag that says as much, nor is there a flashing neon sign over his head that identifies him. If there were those things, it would be helpful. We would clearly know to mark them and avoid them. But friends, we need to give the devil a little more credit than that. He's a little more sneaky than that. When he puts his people in a church, they don't announce their arrival and they don't announce who they work for. They don't say, hey, everybody, I'm here to sow discord and cause division and and keep people or rather draw people away from Christ. No, they, they they creep in unnoticed. One translation actually says they worm their way in. They're quiet for a while. They don't take any doctrinal positions that are obviously unbiblical. But over time, they begin to gain people's trust. They begin to talk a little more and they begin to attach themselves to the body. And eventually they gain positions of leadership and influence where they ever so subtly begin to inject false doctrine into the life of the congregation. 
This is why it's so very important that we, all of us, are students of God's word, that we know the truth, so that when we hear something that's not true, a little voice within us says, uh, something that person's saying isn't quite exactly right somehow. And sometimes we may not even know what exactly it is that's wrong, but the Holy Spirit within us just kind of gives us a little check in our spirit. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have felt that. That's biblical discernment. And we need discernment to know the difference between right and wrong when we hear it. But the only way we get that discernment, the only way that we strengthen it and hone it is by knowing our Bibles. The greatest defense against false teachers in a church is a congregation that knows the word of God. Ephesians 4 challenges us in this, saying we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Have you guys ever known people like that? Just whichever way the wind blows. We'll be carried this way for a while, then this way for a while. And the word of God says, don't be like that, but rather we should measure all things, all teaching, all doctrine against the word of God. And that passage in Ephesians 4 says, we should grow up in all things into our head, Christ Jesus. So we need to grow up in our faith and we do that by applying ourselves to the word of God. That's basically what Jude's trying to get across here in verse four. He's saying, don't be like little children who just swallow hook, line, and sinker everything that they hear. Be aware that there are false teachers who have crept into your fellowship and be discerning. Now, while such men are often unknown to us, at least initially, and, and can fool the people of God, Jude also tells us here in verse 4 that such men never fool God himself. In fact, Jude says in verse 4 that such men were marked long ago for condemnation. In other words, God knows who they are. God knows their true heart, their true intentions. He has always known, and unless they repent of their sin, they will face condemnation. They will face the wrath of God. God does not take lightly those who deceive, abuse, and seek to mislead his children. He is a jealous God. He is a righteous father. And one day, those ungodly men who seek to harm his children will face his terrible wrath. That should serve as a warning to anyone who would prey upon the people of God. Jude also says in verse 4 that such men turn the grace of God into lewdness, or we could say licentiousness. One thing that many false teachers have in common is that they encourage people to impose upon the grace of God, taking advantage of his grace and his mercy and his kindness. For example, you might hear a false teacher say something like, God loves you as you are, so your sin is no big deal. Follow your heart. Live as you want to live. Do what feels good to you. Be who you are. God accepts you. Church, I hope that you understand that that is not the gospel. The truth is that we are not acceptable to God as we are. We are in our natural state sinners at enmity with the holy God, destined for a sinner's hell. The good news is not that God accepts us as we are. The good news is that because God loves us, 
He has made a way for us to be saved and to have eternal life through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Beware false teachers who turn that message, the message of the grace of God, into lewdness or into license to live however you want to live. It's interesting to note as well that word translated as lewdness in New King James. Many commentators say that there is a a sexual connotation to that word, which is why some of your translations will translate it as sensuality. For whatever reason, it seems that oftentimes the grace of God is most twisted by false teachers when it comes to sexuality. We see this in our day with false teachers in false churches telling precious people that God is okay with them being gay or bisexual or transsexual. And hear me, we need to love all people and we need to treat all people with kindness and respect But part of loving someone is telling them the truth. And the truth is that God knew what he was doing when he made you. And the truth is that any sexual expression outside of marriage between one man and one woman is a violation of God's order and is sin against God. False teachers don't tell people that. Instead, they lead them further and further into destruction. As we'll see, Jude is going to address this topic again in coming verses. In general, we see at the end of verse 4, false teachers lead people to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. That's their MO. Not necessarily deny him by their words, although that certainly can happen, but more often deny him by their actions. Deny him by the way that they live their life. We need to understand something. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians because they raised their hand at a church camp or walked an aisle at some point or got dunked in a baptistry. But in reality, Jesus never became their Lord. Their life never changed. And even though if you ask them, they might say they're a Christian, their lifestyle and their actions tell a much different story. Now listen, it is not up to us to judge other people's salvation. That is not what I am encouraging you to do. That is between them and God, ultimately. What I am encouraging you to do is to look at your own heart, to look at your own life, to look at your own actions, and ask yourself, am I truly in Christ? Am I truly living for him? Do I bear the fruit of a Christian? Or am I effectively denying Jesus as Lord with my actions by the way I live. Because if Jesus isn't your Lord, he's not your Savior either. And we need to be honest with ourselves about that. As we come to a time of response this morning, I want to challenge you. First, I want to challenge Christians. Contend earnestly for the faith. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Stand firm on God's word. Be a defender of what is right and true. Contend for it. Agonize for it. Read and study God's word so that you're equipped to do that, so that you know error when you hear it. I also want to speak to those here today who have never put your faith in Christ. 
If you're here this morning and the Holy Spirit is saying to you, you know what? Maybe you did raise your hand at some point or walk an aisle at some point, but you're not really a Christian. You've never truly made Jesus the Lord of your life. There's no better time to get right with God than right now and today. Admit to God that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus died on the cross for you, for your sin and your place, and that he rose from the dead. And then commit your life fully to him, and he will save you, and he will give you eternal life.